Hey nerds, I'm Will Wheaton. I currently host The Ready Room, your online destination for all things Star Trek universe. I also played Wesley Crusher on Star Trek The Next Generation, and you are listening to the Trek Untold podcast. Hello and welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz, and this week on the show I am very excited because I'm going to be nerding out super hardcore. And what's the reason for this super duper nerdiness that's about to unfold here? Well, we are talking to none other than Will Wheaton. Growing up watching Star Trek The Next Generation as a kid, I very much was one of those people who identified with the character of Wesley Crusher, because he was the youngest person on that ship, and in my mind, I saw myself very much being that very same person walking those corridors of the Enterprise. Now sure, there was quite an age difference between our two characters, but at the end of the day, he still was a kid, and he was growing up on that ship in a way that I wished I was growing up on it. But back then, I never knew the stories about what Will went through while he was filming that series, and now today as an adult, we know a whole lot more about the trials and tribulations that Will went through during not only his parts on Star Trek, but through much of his Hollywood career. And many of those topics Will talks about in his book, Still Just a Geek, which is the new updated annotated version of his memoirs that first came out in 2004 and are now being re-released today with some new stories, because as Will put it, he's not the same person he was back when he first wrote that book almost two decades ago. And really, that was the main reason why he decided to update his memoirs, because he wanted to make sure the world knew he's not that same person he was back when he initially wrote that book. They are two very different people, and we're going to really examine what the difference is between those two people as we go into this interview and talk about that topic. And this being Trek Untold, we're not just going to be talking about Star Trek. We do spend a lot of time discussing his relationship with his parents, and really very much the struggles and battles that he has had with mental health, with his depression, with his anxiety, and more recently, his public announcement of his sobriety and his battle with alcoholism. Being under the public eye is a very stressful thing, especially when you're someone who grew up like Will Wheaton, who grew up with the stigma of being Wesley Crusher, which as much as many of us out there love the character, there's still plenty of folks out there who do not. And there's a certain meme that floats around that to this day still very much bothers him, and I'm not going to say what it is. But yeah, it's one of those things that has haunted him for decades, and it's taken him decades, really, to get to a place where he feels comfortable with what everything is around him, with his career, and with the place that he's at today. So as much as this episode is going to be about Star Trek, because don't you worry, we do talk about Star Trek here, it's also very much, I want to think of it as an episode to be hopeful or optimistic about people who are struggling with mental health issues. So in other words, that's kind of my disclaimer here to warn you that, yeah, this episode is going to start off very heavy and very, very serious. But it's one of those discussions that is extremely important to have with people, especially because, hey, maybe someone out there might need to hear the words that Will has said, because he is someone that continues to fight the good fight to this day. And I know there's a lot of Trekkies out there who could really use those words that Will has to say and really use the knowledge that he has accumulated over the years while continuing to fight this fight. While Wesley Crusher might be some intergalactic traveler, Will Wheaton is very much a Klingon warrior. And when I say that, it's not because he's out there having batleth battles in the street with random people. No, it's because Will is taking on one of the hardest fights of all time, and that's the battle against mental illness. And it's a very honorable battle to take on because it requires a warrior of much strength and skill to navigate that treacherous path. And Will Wheaton is absolutely doing that. Will and I dive into a lot of topics from his career and his life. So really, this episode is just as much stories from behind the scenes on things like Star Trek, Stand By Me, and Toy Soldiers. But really, more so, it's about the, the mental health advocacy that Will does. And hopefully, it's the kind of stories that will truly help somebody out there who needs the help. Maybe they need to push in the right direction. Maybe they need to push to stay on the right path. Whatever it may be, Will Wheaton is more than just a geek, just like the title of his new book says. And I think you're going to see a lot of that today in this interview. But before we start talking to this week's guest, I want to remind you guys to make sure you are following Trek Untold on all forms of social media. You can check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all at Trek Untold, and that's one word, Trek Untold, no spaces in between. That's the best way to stay up to date on who our guests are for the week, learn all about them before the show begins, and check out all the random memes I post, because yeah, I do a lot of that too. If you're in a position to financially support the show, please consider becoming a Patreon member. Head over to patreon.com slash trekuntold to see all the different ways you can help financially at different contribution levels. Some of the perks include early access to the episodes, having the chance to ask guests questions, and hopefully some more stuff that I'm going to figure out pretty soon. It is easily the best way to directly connect with me, as well as to meet other fans of this show. If you're looking to buy some Trek Untold merchandise, don't worry, that's going to be coming very soon. If you prefer to check out the video version of this podcast, head over to youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday, where every Sunday I post these episodes in video format, which includes a lot of images and video from the guests that we're talking to. 
But the most important thing you can do to help support this show is please leave us ratings and reviews if you're checking us out on iTunes, on Spotify, or other audio platforms that allow you to leave reviews and ratings, or by subscribing to our YouTube channel, as well as giving our Trek Untold videos thumbs up, likes, and comments. All these interactions help push our podcast to the very top of these different platforms to make sure more Star Trek fans can find us. It costs you nothing to do other than a few moments of your time, so please, if you haven't done that already, consider doing so. Oh, and by the way, just a quick note before I get into this episode, I want to mention that during this interview, I misquoted an episode of The Next Generation here in a moment that was actually with a different character. So during this interview, you're going to hear me mention a quote from the episode Peak Performance, which is a quote that Captain Picard said to Data. Whereas during this interview with Will, I said it was from the first duty or something like that. So that's incorrect. That's my mistake. Sorry about that. But I do stand by the purpose of what that question was all about. So I hope you'll forgive me for that pretty major Trek snafu. It does bring us to a very good point that I think a lot of you guys are going to want to hear. And I will do my best to make sure that doesn't happen again. But hey, can you blame me? I was talking to Will Wheaton. He's the traveler for crying out loud. So without further ado, let's go ahead and beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. And welcome back to Trek Untold, and now joining us is one of the men who made it cool to be a geek, and according to his memoirs, he still is one, just this time he's now a little bit more annotated. We've got today with us Mr. Will Wheaton. Will, how are you today? Hi, thanks for having me. Very excited to chat with you here today, and you know, I just I just held up the book, which I pulled out of my magic groin area, I guess. Uh, I just yeah. had a chance to so read it. That looks like you've got a groin of holding, good for you. I do. It's a very enchanted crotch. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I love that we're in your game room today, by the way. I'm like getting a good look at all the cool stuff you have back there. There's some awesome stuff back there. I'm jealous of that game room. It's a really great game room. You know, I come out here every night uh, to wind down my day after my wife goes to sleep and I play some video games or uh, and listen to some music. And literally every night before I go back into the house, I stand in the middle of this room and I say thank you that I have this. Like, I, I, I say thank you to uh, all the previous iterations of myself who worked so very hard to make it to this point. Um, and uh, uh, I am so grateful for what this room means to me and, and everything that it represents. It's very cool. I aspire to have a room as amazing as that one day. That's, that's life goals for me. <laughs> So, you know, the book we're talking about today, this is basically the annotated version of your 2004 memoirs. And uh, it's basically you picking up a project that was started almost 20 years ago, close to 20 years ago. So yeah. I'd love to hear what brought you back to this project, and especially one that was so many, many, many years in the making. My editor at Harper, uh, David Pomerico, it was his idea. Uh, David um, was a fan of the original book and had this idea that it could be looked at again with a different set of eyes um and 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 revisited and reinterpreted and um uh i i initially thought i don't want to do this nobody wants to read this i certainly don't and he encouraged me to at least try so i did and i was able to rather quickly see like yeah i think i probably i have some things that might be worth saying right now um, I'm a different person than I was when I wrote this. And uh, if I have an opportunity to look at that person and compare who I am now to who I was then and really see the way things have changed, um, maybe that is actually a good use of my time. And it took a very, very long time to do. It was almost a two year long project for me because it was, um, uh, as I write in the book, there were times where it was very re-traumatizing and, uh, and really difficult. And I had to take, in some cases, a couple of months off uh, before I could go back to it because uh, it was just all so much. Um, by the time it was all done, there are, have been many, many, many moments where I have thought, um, oh, it's too much. Um, and I'm insanely grateful that I keep hearing from people who have read it. I mean, it's only been out a couple of days and some people have already gone all the way through it. And I have already heard from from just a number of people. And I realize that it's like the self-selecting group of people. This doesn't you know, this isn't peer reviewed. This is like absolutely like uh, confirmation bias. But a, some, a, a certain number of people have chosen to contact me and tell me what it meant to them. And, and in some cases, I've specifically called out the parts that I thought were too much as actually being very helpful and meaningful uh, uh, to them in one way or another. So uh, I'm really grateful that David had this idea and uh, that I was supported by such an amazing team of people all the way through the process. 
I'm glad you mentioned, too, that, you know, basically this is a new Will Wheaton that we're talking to from who put out this book originally many, many years ago. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, I'd like to just kind of expand on that a little more. And, you know, can you tell us who this new Will Wheaton is and uh, how were you able to basically deal with kind of looking at these things that, again, caused you trouble over a decade ago? And here they are again. You have to face them one more time. How did you handle that? Um, it uh, was really challenging. Um, probably the two biggest things in my life that are different between when I wrote Just a Geek and now are absolutely related to one another and kind of mark this very clear Rubicon in my life. They mark a very, very clear, um, uh, uh, like one way door, I guess. And the first thing was my decision to stop drinking alcohol, uh, um, uh, like I guess six years ago now or in 2016, um, which allowed me to fully experience emotions and feelings that I had been suppressing and avoiding for a very long time. And a lot of that was related to being abused and used and neglected as a child. And, um, there's a lot of steps to that process. I mean, the first part, the absolute hardest part is for me was recognizing and admitting that these are things that actually happened to me um, because I had lived through these things and then also lived through um, being told that they didn't happen to me and being told that somehow it was my fault and all the things that survivors of abuse endure and hear um, and, uh, and that were unfortunately kind of supported by me, the lies were supported by me because a thing we learn how to do is protect the people who are hurting us because we're terrified of them. And we are so just um, uh, 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 relentlessly shamed by the people who are trying to control us. And in my case, that was my parents. Uh, those two events allowed me to begin the work of addressing with and meaningfully working through the reality, the complicated reality of my childhood and my life to the point when I wrote Just a Geek and then the intervening time between Just a Geek and still Just a Geek. Um, when, uh, when I wrote Just a Geek, <clears throat> I, I remember thinking at the time, like, I, well, I can't tell that and I have to hold this back and I better say this because mom's going to read it and it's going to be a whole fucking thing. And like, and that, you know, that happened for a very, very long time. And I just eventually had to make a choice. My choice was between me living a full, joyful life where I am the most uh, present husband and father I can possibly be, or I continue to chase after the approval of a guy who decided shortly after I was born that for whatever reason, I was never going to be good enough for him and continue chasing the dream of being a famous person that was so important to my mother. She sold my childhood away so she could feel those things. And I had a choice to make. It was those two things or me. And it took a really long time for me to choose me. And that makes, I'm grateful for it, but I'm also really sad about it. And I'm really sad that I know there's people out there right now who are where I was in the, the weird period of time where like, there's a moment of time that, that lasts way longer than, than I want it to, where I know what I have to do. I know what's real. I know what, what, what is, what, what I am feeling. I know what's going on. There's an enormous amount of time between the first time I think that, and when I'm finally standing in my kitchen, it just telling my wife, I'm probably going to have to have a really big, long cry sometime reasonably soon because I have to accept that my dad doesn't love me. And just saying that out loud allowed that grief process to begin, which allowed the ongoing healing process to begin. 
And by the way, too, before I go too deep into this interview, I do want to say congratulations on your sobriety. I mean, not too long ago in this podcast, we had Clyde Kasatsu come on, and he talked to us about his ongoing journey with being sober and how that happened, especially, you know, being around his TV family at the time, which would have been uh, All-American Girl, which is when he was uh, basically came out publicly about it, or more within this group of friends about his alcoholism problems. So uh, congratulations yeah. to you on, on staying sober. Uh, I appreciate that very much. Um, I've had a lot, I had a lot of help um, and a lot of support. Um, and, uh, and, and it's, you know, it's for a while, it was insanely difficult. It was the most difficult thing I've ever done, but I stayed with it every day. I was like, you know, I'm going to keep doing this. I'm going to get through this until, until it generally becomes easier. And now it's, it has like just choosing not to drink alcohol is kind of just part of the background noise of my life. It's just part of a thing that I, that, that exists. I'm incredibly fortunate that it is not a daily struggle, but when it is a struggle, um, I have a great support group and, and, uh, and, and, and a member of that support group is myself. And, um, that's, I don't know if that makes any sense. I don't know if I, if those words mean to anyone listening to this, what they mean to me, but it's significant to me that I can be in my support group. And I want to add to, uh, for our regular listeners here, I'm not quite sure when this episode is going to air, but I have an interview coming up or maybe has already been put out, put out there, uh, with Sachi Parker. And she wrote a book all about her relationship with her mother, Shirley McLean. And mm-hmm. I talked to her and this was many, many years removed since she wrote that book and talking to her in this interview, uh, it was like talking to a completely different person because when she wrote her book about her problems with her mom, her relationship with her mom and her dad, uh, you know, it was from a place of real anger and looking back, yeah. I'd say it's something that she's regrets. Uh, and she's actually been healing her relationship with her parents. Now, I know, obviously, you know, your relationship is very different. Everybody's relationships are going to always be different. But, uh, you know, I feel like with this book, too, this re-release version of uh, of your memoirs, you know, this is definitely Will Wheaton from a different mindset, a completely different mindset, yeah. a completely changed mindset. Uh, so, I mean, I'd love to hear a little bit about, about that difference. I mean, 2004, you're writing your book. Where is that Will Wheaton? And here you are today. What, what is what is what do you have you out with this Will Wheaton? What is this Will Wheaton? In 2004, I have no idea who I am. I'm trying so hard to figure out who I am and I'm struggling like I am struggling every single day to find where I exist in the world. I had spent my entire life being made to feel like I was a thing that existed to care for my mother's happiness um, and, uh, uh, I, and I had been spending my entire life trying to figure out what is the puzzle to be solved? How do I convince my dad to love me? And, uh, like I tried everything, you know, I tried, I tried everything up to and including hating myself as much as he does, as much as he does in an effort to like somehow make it work. And it was just never, ever going to happen. I was, I think, justifiably and understandably and, 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 and appropriately angry about that for a really long time. I mean, like, I would not tell another person who's like, yeah, I just realized and like really fully understood how much of my life was taken away from me and how much I had to exist instead of living um, because of choices other people made. And I'm pissed about it. I would never tell that person, oh, just get over it. Right. Like everything that we go through, it takes, it all takes time. And the process of healing and the process of growing, it all takes time. And uh, uh, I had to learn to be gentle and patient and compassionate with myself. Even when I was doing the, the first pass of annotations and still just a geek. I wasn't patient with myself or empathetic at all. I was annoyed and embarrassed and impatient. And some of that stayed in the final draft because I thought it was important for the the reader to go through the same emotional journey I went through as I did this, starting out being like, oh my God, and getting to, I understand how all of this happened. And I know how it won't happen again. And I, I, I'm not going to judge this person anymore. And I do want to add too, before we get super far into this interview as well, I want to thank you right now as we're just starting this thing for just being so open and honest for the many years you've been talking about this subject. Cause I know right now you're doing a lot of press promoting this book, but it's gotta be tiresome to keep talking about a lot of these subjects and just mentally and emotionally exhausting. So, uh, you know, really have my sincerest gratitude for being open about all of this. 
I appreciate that. You know, I was just, I was controlled and I was shamed and I was silenced for my entire life. And I know there are other people who uh, share my experience in their own way. And just like, you know, part of talking about this now is is giving a voice to that person who was silenced over and over and over again, that person who blamed himself for things that were exacerbated and absolutely made worse um, by people who should have been looking out for him. So, you know, Will, on that note, you know, one of my Patreon supporters, his name is Shalom. Uh, you know, in fact, uh-huh. one of the things, and a lot of my Patreon supporters echoed the same sentiment, was, you know, he really wanted me to ask you and talk to you about depression and talk to you about all of the fights you've gone through. Okay. Because a lot of these folks have heard the things you've said, and they really find a lot of hope in what you say, because you've dealt with these things very publicly, which Mm -hmm. has got to be a tremendous challenge. Um, But you've done so much good for the world in doing that and really presenting yourself out there. So, you know, I'd love to kind of ask you, for a lot of the younger people out there, especially who are listening to this and might be going through similar struggles uh, or their own struggles in that same vein, uh, what's something that you wish someone told you when you were young that you think could help somebody today? So before I say anything at all, I want to be extremely clear. I'm just speaking from my experience, which is unique to me. I have been supported by professionals and I have an understanding of what my unique situation is and how I have dealt with it. Anything I'm going to tell anyone at all is 100% not a substitute for professional uh, psychoanalysis and therapy and potential medical help if that's what you need to support yourself. Do not avoid doing the hard work because you're like, well, I listened to the thing Wheaton said, right? Like you please use that as part of the hard work. This is just a tool in the tool set. The thing that I wish I had known, then the thing that would have made all the difference and the fundamental reason I speak about this openly and directly and absolutely without shame is that there is nothing shameful about mental illness. Mental illness is not weakness. It's not there's something wrong with you. And parents, when your children develop some sort of neurodivergence or develop some sort of clinical chemical depression, especially for parents who kind of didn't participate in the conditions that led to that, it's just kind of like bad luck. In my case, the choices my parents made absolutely affected my developing brain and and led to where I am now. But I know there are lots of parents. It's just sometimes biology is just a dick, you know, and, and that's a bummer. Your child is suffering and it's not about you. It's not about you being embarrassed. You're not a bad parent. You didn't fail some way. This isn't about the neighbors talking about you. And that is how everything was interpreted in my life. It was never about me. It was about how it made them look. It was about what people would say, what the press is going to think, and and those sorts of things. And because I internalized that shame, I didn't talk about it. And I didn't want to get help. And I believed that I was weak. And I believed that... I could just try harder that I wasn't trying enough. And a lot of that, I don't know if everyone with mental illness feels that way, but uh, just a lot of that was a, was a consequence. That belief that I had that if something wasn't working, it's because I wasn't working hard enough to do it. Um, A lot of that was just a consequence of my experiences growing up. The thing that I, I just want everyone to hear and understand and really fully internalize is you are absolutely not alone. There's nothing fundamentally wrong with you. And if you found yourself with a serious infection of some sort, you would absolutely go to the doctor and get like get treatment for it. You know, if you broke your, your arm or you broke your leg, no one in the world would say, well, why aren't you healing faster? Uh, uh, you know, just walk it off. No one would say that to a person in mental illness, just because we cannot see it is no different And for too long, uh, I don't know what it is like in the rest of the world. I know what it is like in late 20th and early 21st century America in my experience. My experience is that we have, we as a people have made a choice to generally just dismiss people with mental illness as, as weak and, and, and worthy of shame. And I am here to tell you that that is absolutely not true. And um, I use myself as an example when I can, because I have an unbelievably amazing life. 
um, like everything in my life is magnificent, uh, 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 rel especially relative to where it was when I wrote Just a Geek. Um, and yet I still live with depression. I still live with anxiety. I still live with PTSD. Um, and that's super okay. It's just part of who I am. It doesn't completely define me. It's not the beginning and ending of my existence. And it shouldn't be the beginning and ending of, of anyone else's existence either. Please reach out to help. You can even do it anonymously. You can contact, in America, you can contact NAMI. There are now uh, a lot of states are using their public health, health resources and public health departments to communicate with people through text messages if you're more comfortable there. Um, uh, I, I promise you, like, if someone has chosen a life as a therapist, it's because they want to help you. It, it, it's like, you're not a burden on them and, and, and you shouldn't be embarrassed. They're like, ah, oh, I spent so long in school learning about all of this stuff so that I could help another person feel better and live their life and get the most out of their lives. They're thrilled to be there for you. I spent a long time thinking like, well, I'm just annoying this therapist if I go there. And that was all the learned helplessness and self-blaming that kind of came out of abuse and trauma. And we're going to have links also on our show notes to a lot of different places where you can turn to if you need help anonymously or different ways you can help yourselves out. So, uh, you know, it's going to be another way of showing gratitude to you today. Make sure people know where to find help out there. And, you know, as someone who was kind of dealing with his own depression, his own anxiety issues, too, you know, there's there's a lot of parts in the book where I can relate to. And I'm like, I feel that I know what you're going through. I can totally feel this. And one of those parts that it's like it's so weird that it bothers me so much is there's a part where you're talking about going to uh, Robert Beltran's Galaxy Ball event. And yeah. like, you know, Frakes and Patrick Stewart come up to you and they ask you, how are you? And in yeah. my mind, like, I hate hearing that question because I don't know how to answer it. I can't answer. Yeah. It. I'm just like, yeah, how am I? I mean, I got a ton of thing going on and like everything's spinning. And I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to avoid that and ask you how you are. But that was yeah. something that just, you know, that one really, uh, that one really hit me so much. I hate being asked, how are you? And I wonder if that's. There, there was a long time. There was a long time in my life where I hated that question because the, the only answer I could possibly give was I'm terrible. I'm pretending that I'm not, but I'm terrible. I'm scared. I'm I'm flailing. Um, I am I am hurting all the time. I feel like a complete failure and I'm just terrified. And I could never say that. That's not my answer. Now, when someone asks me that now, my answer is generally, you know, I'm pretty good. Um, I'm, I might be working through some stuff, uh, but that's all right. I feel like when someone asks me that, I've always wanted to just give the honest answer, whatever it may be. And I kind of feel like maybe some percentage of the time when someone asks that question, they're not necessarily prepared for the honest answer. And I might feel like, well, I don't want to lay this on them, you know? Um, but yeah, that was that was difficult. A thing that's really important about that, that specific moment, is that came up at a time in my life where I just felt like a giant failure and a complete loser. Like I had let everybody down and I got there and these three men who were father figures to me in a way that the one man in the world who can actually be my father chose not to be, they loved me and accepted me and they were just happy to see me. They were happy that I was there. They wanted me to be doing well and how I actually was doing um, was something they did care about. And I think that if I had been in a point at a place where I could have said, can I just tell you the truth of what's going on with my life? Every single one of them would have been there for me um, in, in the way that they ended up being there for me when I finally did say to each of my castmates privately and as a group, I need to tell you the truth about my life and what you mean to me. Yeah, and I have to admit something too, by the way, Will, this is going to be related, but it's a weird segue, but uh, I'd actually never watched Stand By Me all the way until I was prepping for this interview, and I got to watch oh. it, and yeah. I think, to be honest, my only experience with it was, I think I saw a part of it on like WPIX 11 here in New York, and I happened to yeah. just come in on the very part where you guys are all wading through the water with the leeches, and yeah. uh, to this day, I'm pretty sure that's what par is part of what traumatized me for seeing my own blood, uh, but <laughs> that's a story for a reformative therapist, that's a different thing altogether, but... Um, you know, there's a line to me that really stood out that River Phoenix's character, he says to your character at one point, uh, and it's, it's about having your character not stop writing. And yeah. he says to you, kids lose everything unless there's someone there to look out for them. And watching this movie so many years later and knowing what we know about your life now, what was going on then, I mean, uh, I'd love to kind of hear, you know, looking back on things, is there something today that you understand about your performance back then that you didn't know back then when you were doing it? Yeah, absolutely. The, the defining characteristic of Gordy Lachance's life is that his parents don't see him. He is completely unimportant to them. And his his father 
doesn't even try to hide it. He is just openly contemptuous of him. And that was my existence. That was my life at home. While my mother buzzed around kind of always making sure everybody, just reminding everybody, you know, dad's great, like all the time, you know? Um, and it just wasn't true. And when I watch Stand By Me and I see the sadness and the pain and the like haunted loneliness in my eyes in that movie when I was turning 13 years old, the thing that I wonder is where the fuck were the adults in my life? Where were the adults who must have seen it? Somebody must have seen it. Somebody must have seen how sad I was. That's just, it's not a thing that you can completely hide, you know? And I know that I'm good at hiding it. I say this all the time. The thing that we excel at as abuse survivors is protecting the people who abused us. One of the things that we are just like, we are, it, no one does it as well as, as we do, uh, is completely hiding it to the point where we even believe the lie we're telling other people, right? And at some point, I just wonder, was there a person who saw that and was like, what? Nobody said, hey, kid, are you okay? And that may have been the times. That may have just been a thing that, you know, people didn't do that in mid 80s. I, I would like to believe that if I saw a kid who was, who was being treated the way I was being treated, I as an adult now would say something to somebody. Um, but I think about that a lot. I think about how for the longest time I could see that Corey played Teddy because Corey had that level of anger and rage at his parents. I saw that Vern was brilliantly played by Jerry because he's sweet and kind and loving and, and very funny and uh, uh, just kind of unbothered. Right. And river played Chris because he clearly had been let down by the adults in his life. Uh, I'm not going to talk. I'm not going to speak to River's life. I'm going to say that I know things that no child should ever have endured. And I know that 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 they affected him. And uh, I could never figure out where I fit in there because the truth was, oh, I fit in there because I was this kid who was invisible, whose father hated him, whose uh, mother was just like not a mom. Right. Um, and and who was trying to find himself and figure out what he was going to do. And that thing where he's like, uh, where, where Chris says, I wish the hell I was your dad. Like, I never really thought about what that actually meant until I was in my 40s, because I wasn't really ready to reckon with the reality of it. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I just fit in that. I fit in that cast the way that I do, because I am absolutely that person. And I absolutely was that person. And when I look at every film role, I ever played. And when I look at my work on Star Trek, for example, all of my characters, all of the memorable characters, even when I played myself on the Big Bang Theory, all of the memorable characters don't have a father. And I just think that that is a significant thing and it's not a coincidence. Yeah, I, I just want to add to onto that note, you know, just watching the movie again for the first time, knowing now what's going on with your life and having understanding about that. It's just like you and like you mentioned, all of your co-stars in that film. It's like really no one's acting. You're just living and you're just reading lines while you're living. Yeah. And I've always said, and I believed this forever, that Rob just found these four young men who were those characters and then guided us in a gentle, compassionate, um, patient, nurturing way. Uh, and I never put together. I never put it together. Um, and and like remembering that is is it's frightening to me. It's unsettling to me. What else? did I not know? What else do I not remember? Because I accepted it for normal and it's just become part of the, you know, it's become part of the montage. I have no idea. Yeah. And kind of looking a few years ahead of that, I'd like to ask a little bit about Toy Soldiers because in the book okay. too, uh, I think there's like someone asks you, uh, I guess it was through your blog. They're like, Hey, when are you going to talk about Toy Soldiers? And you were like, I'll get to it. Uh, I, I don't know if today is the day to talk about it or not, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about it. Cause I didn't know it existed, honestly, until my friend mentioned it and I found it and I was like, and I watched it. And I was like, wow, this is actually really cool. I liked the movie a lot. Uh, it seemed like a lot of fun, but it seemed like it might have also happened at, at a time in your life that was also, again, a very challenging point chronologically for you. So uh, if there's anything you'd like to tell tell me about that, I mean, I'd love to hear it. 
I carried a lot of baggage about toy soldiers for a really long time. I had expectations for it that were unreasonable and unrealistic. And I had expectations for myself and how it would uh, uh, fit into my career that were unreasonable and, 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 and unrealistic. And I just didn't know it at the time. I read recently, someone said it was a commercial and critical failure. I guess if you're going to go, you know, if you're going to do that, fine. At this moment in my life, with Still Just a Geek being released right now, I have had to work very hard to constantly remind myself to not allow another person to define success or failure for me. Um, and like, like maybe that maybe that movie didn't make a lot of money, but that doesn't mean that it was a failure. Critics didn't like it, but it wasn't a movie that critics were ever going to like. That was a movie. It's like teenage action adventure fantasy movie, you know? Um, and and as far as that goes, I think it ticks all the boxes in a really fun and, uh, and, and, and entertaining way. I just had this expectation that I was doing a movie after Stand By Me and after Star Trek, and here we go, you know, the big careers coming back. Like, that was just how everything worked for me because those were, I, I keep saying this, but it just... John Green talks about how anger and, and resentment can be an incredible motivator, you know? Um, and there comes a point where the, the, the anger, the resentment, the fear, um, all of these negative things that are providing incredible fuel that is, that is, that is, you know, heating up the fire that powers the engine. Well, eventually that becomes toxic waste that rots the entire machine and just breaks it all down. And um, I had to learn, and it took me over 30 years to learn how to find a different fuel source. Uh, I don't need to burn that stuff anymore. Um, I was still trying to burn it when I did Toy Soldiers. All of that said, I just had the best time ever working on that movie. Um, it was fun. Dan Petrie Jr., who wrote and directed it, was delightful. He... He and Rob Reiner made me feel like I really deserved to be on that set. They both made me feel uh, on their sets. They both made me feel like I was a peer, like I was a valuable part of their experience. Um, and uh, uh, like, like I, like I mattered there. And that was very different from the way I felt at home. I felt like I was, you know, worthless. And even on the set at Star Trek, the cast made me feel wonderful. The cast made me feel loved and protected. My studio teacher made me feel loved and protected. For the for the most part, our crew was incredible and loving and kind. But Rick Berman, our executive producer, kind of treated me the same way my dad did, and and kind of treat and 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 in a lot of ways, kind of treated me the same way my mom did. And um, as a consequence of that, until Toy Soldiers came around. I felt like, oh, I have to keep earning being here. I have to keep proving that I deserve to be here so that eventually they will treat me like a human being. And uh, it wasn't until I did Toy Soldiers that I, I kind of recognized, holy crap, like Dan's treating me like a person, like I deserve to be here, like my ideas are, are worth listening to. And Rob Reiner did the exact same thing. And I remember starting to think like, hey, wait a minute. Maybe it's not me. Maybe it's just maybe the way I was treated isn't right. And it's not that I'm not good enough. It's that that I wasn't there. And then that idea was like, wow, if I'm willing to look at that, if I'm going to tug on that Jenga block, maybe the whole tower is going to collapse. I'm walking away from this. And I didn't look at it for another couple of decades. I got to tell you again, first time seeing that, I really enjoyed it. Uh, and the cast is really stellar, too. Uh, I have to tell you, as a random aside, I mean, my, my girlfriend watched it also, and she was uh, a little disturbed by how much she enjoyed looking at Sean Astin's like, shirtless body so much in that film. I, well, who doesn't? He's gorgeous. Well, yeah, I, mean, I, mean, come I on. disagree. Come on. <laughs> yeah, if I looked like that, I would, they would, if, if I looked half as good as Sean looks in that movie, it would be, Will, will you please put your clothes back on? And I would be like, <laughs> and deny the world this? What are you talking about? <laughs> You know, talking about toy soldiers, uh, and this might be a place we don't want to talk about, but um, there's one scene that kind of stood out to me. And, and, you know, we were talking earlier in this interview about how, like, so many of your memorable characters have problems with their dads or have no fathers. And, yeah. uh, you know, and again, your character in this film very much has quite the issues with his dad, who is a mob boss. Yeah. And the scene that stands out to me is when your character, uh, this is going to be a major spoiler. But uh, when your character... At the I don't end, think you can spoil a thing that's 30 years old. <laughs> I mean, for me, it was... Not, hey, I've never seen Stand By Me, so that's all new to me. But... Uh, you know, the scene it basically... the body. Yes, that... <laughs> Spoilers. 
Uh, so yeah, like the scene where your character gets killed. And yeah. that scene stands out to me in particular because it's like, you know, again, you're dealing with a lot of it, things that a teenage Will Wheaton does not know how to deal with. And, yeah. you know, I don't know if suicide ideation was something that you really dealt with, but I'm just wondering, you know, like having to do a death mm-hmm. scene, did any of that affect just anything about you? I mean, I'm trying to think of a good way to put it, but just that death scene, I wonder how much weight that carried on to you. I had the flu when we shot that. I had a temperature over 100 degrees. My entire body was wired up with explosives and blood packs and all that stuff. And I was falling backward from my almost six foot height directly onto um, granite steps that had been constructed before the first American Civil War. The only thing I remember about that entire experience is how much everything physically hurt my body because I was so sick when we filmed it. The scene where Luis Cali is like, we respect your father and Joey's like, fuck my father. I did not realize until this very moment, oh, wow, I could have been saying that and talking straightly to the guy who was my father. The reality is I was so, Dan Petrie at the beginning of that movie said, would you, can you do an accent? And I was like, I mean, I guess. And he was like, and he said, can you do this, you know, like somebody who's from New York? And I said, I mean, I mean, I know how to do what you hear from TV and like from Ghostbusters and stuff but I don't have any formal training. I couldn't tell you the difference between somebody who's from Manhattan and somebody who's from Queens. And I know that that's a big difference the same way that someone from Orange County and the San Fernando Valley have very different accents. Um, I have no idea. And I said, my biggest concern is that I'm going to sound like Corey Feldman in Lost Boys. And I don't want to do that. And he said, I will not let that happen to you. I promise. And I said, okay. So when I did that scene, all I was focused on was don't mess up the way you're saying this. I was I was very much, very much in my head. Um, there is a thing, uh, uh, any actors uh, uh, will, will know what I'm talking about. There's a difference between being in your head and being present in the scene. And I was 100% in my head for that scene. Well, can I just tell you, I'm very much relieved that there is no dark story to, attached to that part of the film. So I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah, there's no dark story attached to Toy Soldiers at all. It was a really lovely experience. I really enjoyed it. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. Ranging from prop replicas to use in a fan film or cosplay, to accessories or playsets for figures in all different sizes, Triple Fiction Productions has got you covered. Past pieces for toys have included large centerpieces like 10 Forward from the Enterprise D, shuttlecrafts complete with working lights, and the Voyager Bridge, with smaller pieces including Borg alcoves, the Genesis device, and the dreaded arch enemy of Worf, barrels. All highly detailed products are 3D printed and hand painted in the USA, with new items added all the time, while simultaneously improving their printing quality based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit triple-fictionproductions.net or visit them on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Want to get 10% off your next purchase? Use code UNTOLD10 at checkout to receive this discount. Not applicable during sales or clearance events. That's code UNTOLD10 to get 10% off action figure dioramas, accessories, and prop replicas. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hi, I'm Jonathan Frakes. If you're of a certain age, you may remember me as Commander Riker from Star Trek The Next Generation. And my wonderful brother Daniel died with pancreatic cancer 24 years ago. They opened him up, they diagnosed, they said, you've got six months to live. And that was it. He died four months later. And at that time, there was a 3% survival rate. Since then, we've grown to the embarrassingly high number of 10%. But a dear friend of mine and probably all of yours, Kitty Swink, is one of those 10%. She has survived pancreatic cancer for 17 going on 18 years. Pancreatic cancer is the third leading cause of cancer-related deaths in the United States. With a five-year survival rate, that's just 10%. And more than 60,000 Americans are estimated 
to be diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2021. More than 48,000 will die from the disease because symptoms are often vague and be hard to detect. That's why I'm supporting the Pancreatic Cancer Action Network, the leading patient advocacy organization committed to fighting the world's toughest cancer. PanCan is working hard to create outcomes for this devastating disease through its groundbreaking research in early detection and better treatment options. PanCan drives progress by funding life-saving research, providing personalized patient services, and creating a community of supporters and volunteers like you who will stop at nothing to create a world in which all pancreatic cancer patients will thrive. You can help support our important mission by donating today at pancan.org. Thanks for your time. We now return to Trek Untold. All right, well, Will, let us beam into our Star Trek discussion finally here. And, uh, awesome. you know, we're looking at your game room right now, and I love it. Of course, I've already said how much I love it. I'm drooling at it this entire interview. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I'm an action figure collector myself, and you have had several action figures of yourself. And uh, truth be told, your original Playmates one in your Starfleet Academy uniform actually was one of my favorites as a kid. Um, so I would love to hear your thoughts on your action figures. I mean, did you like them? Do you like how they look? Do you have any of yourself? I have all of them. Um, I... Stand by. The day these came out, I went to the website and bought cases of them. Ah, uh, you got the Super 7 reaction figure. Because, come on, it's amazing. This is the best action figure of me that's ever been made. The Playmates action figures are fun, but they don't look anything like me. He's got green eyes. He's got, like, these weird kind of, like, elven eyebrows and sort of, like, high pixie cheekbones. I mean, he's gorgeous. I wish that I looked like that. It's the D&D uh, version of you. Yeah, totally. Um, the one the one that I want, if any of you uh, 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 eccentric collectors out there have one of these and feel like parting with something that's worth more than it should be, the one that I really want is the Galoob prototype of uh, of Wesley from season one, which was never actually made. There's a few dozen of them in the world. Um, I would absolutely love to have that. I am a kid who grew up playing with Star Wars figures. So my imagination was my safe place. Um, retreating into my imagination in a book or in uh, an early, you know, Atari 2600 video game or uh, making up a story or playing Dungeons and Dragons. Like that was where I was safe. Anything I could do to get away from just how scared and, and, and uh, uh, unsafe I felt all the time, getting into my imagination was a really safe, really great place to be. And I, you know, was writing fan fiction with action figures. I think that's sort of like, you know, you, you play with action figures and then some of us, we take the stories we told with action figures and we like take that experience and then build on it and start actually writing out narratives and things like that. And that was kind of the beginning for me. I, I, I even I even talk about in, in, in the original Just a Geek and, and, and it's in Still Just a Geek, the story of trading my Death Star for a land speeder and uh, uh, what a terrible trade that was and how much I regretted it. And I think I even describe... The games I played, the stories I made up with my action figures were like my early versions of fan fiction. Um, so like to be someone who is from the action figure generation, to have an action figure of myself is incredibly cool. Uh, it was a bummer when I was in my teens that they didn't do any back then. They started them when I was kind of in my 20s and it didn't look anything like me. Then they did kind of a, a taller action figure, a bigger one that sort of looked like Cadet Wesley Crusher that I thought really did look like me, that I, that, that was amazing. Um, uh, but then this one, you know, this one with 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 Wesley in his in his in his rainbow spacesuit, I think is is my absolute favorite one. Yeah, the space sweater is a must have because it really does complete the Galoob line. And uh, you know, by the way, for, uh, if you are actually curious, one of our former guests in the show, Brian Volkweiss, you might know from the Nacelle Company, uh, he mm -hmm. actually owns one of those protos. So you got to talk to him. Oh man, they're so hard to find. Oh, they are very hard. I think like there was one floating around on eBay for a lot of money a while ago. Yeah, it's ridiculous. It's like four figures. Like forget yeah, it. At least um, four figures. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I got to rewatch a lot of your Wesley Crusher episodes when I was doing this, you know, doing my prep time because I had to just rewatch everything. I needed to rewatch. I needed to get the full Crusher experience. And, okay. uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of great episodes. And I got to tell you, like, revisiting one of my favorites I hadn't seen in a long time uh, was The Game. And uh -huh. uh, in particular, I just like that one because you got Ashley Judd. And, I mean, you know, 
prepubescent Matthew was very much into that and still is today. But, uh, you know, that's that's a different podcast. But uh, I would just love to hear any memories you have from being in that episode, because that is like, I think, Wesley's finest hour in terms of like him being the hero and uh, doing a lot of really, really awesome, cool stuff that I feel like he didn't necessarily get to have a chance to do as much in other episodes. So I'd love to hear any memories you have of, of that particular episode. I had a lot of conflicting emotions about that episode. Um, I very much wanted to go work on Star Trek again after not being part of it for a few years. That story is told in the book. I'm not going to tell it again. And at that moment, I was so excited for the opportunity to go be there and be with my family again and be this character again. At the same time, um, I felt like, fucking Wesley saves the Enterprise, really? Like, is that, you know, because it is not true that Wesley always saved the Enterprise, but that's a meme that took hold in fandom and never went away. And it's like, it's one of those fallacies that people just accept for being true. Um, At one point in my life, I actually did all the math and figured out how many times other characters like saved the enterprise compared to the number of times Wesley saved the enterprise. And it's ridiculous. Like it's just the meme that these people couldn't do anything. And Wesley had to bail them out all the time is it's just, it's lazy and it's wrong. But I, but at that time I I was like, yeah, I guess that's true. And I felt very conflicted about it. Like, I really want to come back and do this, but also why this way? Um, I had a real good time. When I did it, it was great to be back there. When when Ashley Judd worked with us, um, she hadn't really done much as an actor at, at that moment in her career, um, and was kind of known as the 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 third sister of like the Judds, right? Uh, the country music group, and um, I was intimidated by her, and I felt awkward and weird. Um, you know, I was 18. She was a beautiful woman and, and, uh, and kind. And I just felt like unworthy, I guess, in a lot of ways. I know that she doesn't talk. She, I do not know why she doesn't talk about the thing she did on Star Trek. It's almost like, it feels like almost like she's ashamed of it or something and wants it completely erased from her, but from her resume, which is a shame, but like, you know, no judgment. Um, There were moments where younger, lazy hack writer me made jokes about Wesley and Robin Leffler and and things like that. And I regret it. And um, I own it in the book and I own it in footnotes. When it comes up, I will say, I know Ashley Judd does not remember me or doesn't even know that I exist right now and does not care about this. But I'm sorry. That's embarrassing and regretful and inexcusable, um, you know, that I made these childish jokes um, uh, in an effort to kind of like project an image. I know she doesn't care, but somebody does. Uh, and I regret that. I feel bad about that. Yeah. I want to talk a little about some of your space family, if you will, uh, cause you mentioned, yeah. you know, the relationships that you built with all these people. And, uh, I'd like to ask you something about Patrick Stewart, because yeah. there's a part in the book that, uh, you talk about how you got goosebumps. The first time you heard his voice, uh, when you were at the encounter at Farpoint premiere, just hearing yeah. you do that opening title sequence. And, yeah. you know, I want to fast forward now to when you're doing the episode, the first duty. And you and Patrick Stewart have a very serious scene together. And he delivers, I think this is like one of the most important lines in Star Trek history. Uh, and yeah, that line is... I know is, what you're going to say. Yeah, the you first duty of any Starfleet officer is to the truth, right? Oh, oh actually, I was going to ask, uh, it is possible to commit no mistakes and still lose. That is not weakness, that is life. That's so much better than what I thought it was. Yours is great too. I'm not going to argue. They're both no, great, but I that's mean, one. It's fine, but yours is way better and way more Picardy and may, way more fatherly. <laughs> Um, than captain It's true, yeah. Uh, I haven't watched that episode in forever, so I don't I actually kind of had forgotten about that line. Um, I'd love to kind of know, you know, again, just looking at the scene here, um, you know, how you felt doing that one, because again, that's like a real father-son kind of talk, and in particular, did that line, I and mean, now you're maybe rethinking about it again, does that line hold any meaning to you, or did it hold any meaning to you back then? It didn't then. I wasn't capable um, of, of, of understanding it. I hadn't, like, <laughs> my... my uh, uh, my, I, I didn't have enough points in my wizard build to read that particular grimoire. That is, uh, that's a wonderful message. And, and I think that it is, um, it is an extremely important leadership message. And it's one of those things that I think 
fathers should absolutely share with their children. No Star Trek fans, Picard is not Wesley's father, um, but he was absolutely his father figure. Um, and we see that over and over and over again in their relationship. And it existed in my relationship with Patrick. Um, and uh, uh, I wish I remembered more about it. I bet if I were to sit down and watch it, memories would would shake loose. Um, I just haven't been there. I haven't spent time there in a really long time. What I remember kind of about that whole thing, that's in the observation lounge, right? I like believe it is. I couldn't tell you the exact spot, but... Uh, okay, so... It, the, it was somewhere in space. Well, so what I what I remember is we're standing in the observation lounge and Wesley's like kind of standing at attention while Picard kind of lets him have it. And I remember saying to Corey Allen, the director, I want to keep eye contact with Picard. And Corey was like, no, that's not right. You are like just sitting there listening and you are being an officer and you're not, you know, you're not tracking him. And it's two different performances. And he was right. And I was wrong. And I listened to him. And I'm so glad that I did. Um, and I think it makes for a for a really terrific scene. Also, people always ask me, like, you know, what's your favorite episode of Star Trek? What's your favorite episode to work on? What's your favorite episode to watch? I generally don't like to talk about one thing being a favorite just because I think in some way it means that like everything else, if something comes in first, something has to come in second. And in some ways that can diminish things that should not be diminished. All of that said, the first duty was a really memorable and joyful episode for me to work on because I got to work with a lot of actors who were my own age. Robbie and Walker and Shannon were incredible. And uh, I didn't know what that was like. I didn't know what it was like to be with a peer group. And I understood for seven days of production what the rest of my castmates had with each other that I wasn't part of. Um, and, uh, and, and I felt like, wow, I really missed out on all of this. But then when I worked on the Big Bang Theory, I got to enjoy that sense of being up here and being this of a similar age with not just my fellow actors, but also all the writers and the behind the scenes people who have now, who became and, are, and still are my friends. And shameless plug, too, for anybody who wants to know, and for you, too, Will, uh, you know, episode 12 of Trek Untold, we actually spoke to Walker Brandt, and we talked about the episode. Oh, cool! And she had a great time. She loved it. And one of her fondest memories, uh, and not just how cute you were, was uh, just how much you were into Ren and Stimpy and how you were showing everybody, like, tapes of Ren and Stimpy backstage. I love Ren and Stimpy so much. Also, I had a, a, a math, uh, like, a, 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 an appropriate, just, like, God damn, she's beautiful crush on her. So the fact that she thought I was cute makes me feel really good. <laughs> you should. I wish I got a cute thing from Walker Brand. I mean, my God, <laughs> to this day, she's still. Mm. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, on the lighter note, too, we're talking about this episode here, and this has got Robert Duncan McNeil as Lacarno Le- is his character. Mm. I'd love for you to weigh in on this. Is Lacarno actually Tom Paris or are they yeah, different of course characters? He is. No, of course he is. Absolutely he is. I mean, I think Robbie even says that he is. Um, uh, in my head, Kennedy is. Uh, that's an example of not wanting to pay a writer a licensing fee for a character, um, which happened a lot back then. I don't think that would really happen now. Um, I think for absolutely Paris would be Locarno, but I mean, come on, they're very clearly the same character. I think it's cool that Robbie made such an impression on them when he came in for that one episode yeah. that, that I'm guessing it was Rick and Brandon were like, this dude's great. We got to bring him in full time on something. And, uh, he, Robbie has always been just delightful to me, kind and generous and and enthusiastic and friendly and welcoming. I've never been directed by him. I would love to experience that. Um, uh, He's a really good human being. Um, And and, uh, I really, really enjoyed working with him on that episode. Yeah, I'd love to actually ask you something about, uh, again, space dad slash space father figure and also space mom, Gates McFadden, who's also been yeah. on the show, too. Uh, yeah. and, and I'd love to hear, you know, what's the most valuable lesson you've learned from either of them? And not necessarily about Star Trek, you know, that happened on Star Trek or about acting, but the most valuable, important lesson you've learned about yourself or about life through Gates or Patrick. I had to learn that I am enough. And the way that I learned that was kind of roundabout. I didn't feel like I was enough at home. I didn't feel like I was enough in my family of origin. I didn't feel like I was enough in my extended family. When I was really aware of that and was capable of looking at it in context and and comparing the way I felt with my actual family, versus the way I felt with my space family, 
I could see the huge difference. I could see how toxic and cruel and unhealthy my relationship with my parents was because my relationship with my coworkers was not that. And Gates and Frakes and Brent and LeVar and Dorn and Marina and Patrick never made me earn their affection. They never made me feel like I was on probation or I was being tested or that I was being judged. And I felt those things every second of every day in my home. They made it really clear that they loved me because I exist and that my ideas are valuable and that the things that I care about matter. I never got any of that anywhere else. And getting that from them was and is really important. Um, and I, I don't know how to quantify the enormity of it. Um, other than, other than to just say like, they were always there when I didn't know they were there. They were there. They always showed up for me. That's a great lesson. And, uh, you know, just to kind of lighten this thing up before we come to our, our conclusion of this interview here, uh, I'd just yeah. love to get your thoughts on your space mom in Sub Rosa. What did you think about that episode? Um, I love absolutely everything Gates has ever done ever in her entire career. The only thing in Next Generation that ever made me really uncomfortable as it relates to Gates is the weird kind of yoga workout thing with, I think, Troy. Yeah, it just, it just felt very male gazy to me in a really gross way that was jarring considering Star Trek's progressive progressivism. That is the only time that I really felt like, oh, this is gross. Um, my great regret, and I know it's Gates' regret as well, is that Wesley and Beverly didn't have more scenes together. She and I often talked about how Wesley's brilliant. He was raised by a single mom. Who nurtured that brilliance? Who nurtured and cared for and supported him as he was learning to be a human being and deal with the loss of his father? She was the one who was always there all the time. She was the one who was like, Wesley, go do your work. Wesley, you fucked up. Here's how to not do that again. Wesley, I'm your mom. I love you. That part of their relationship and that part of, 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 of Wesley's story and Beverly's story was never developed. And it was like ignored. And it almost feels to me like maybe there were men who didn't have close relationships with their mothers who were kind of in positions of making decisions and just that story didn't matter to them. They didn't think about that story. I, I would actually kind of love to, to see uh, even just in like, you know, fiction, um, Wesley and Beverly together and Wesley just, mom, I really need advice. I, I, you know, You've helped me before. What should I do? And Beverly talking to him about it. Beverly coming to Wesley and just saying like, you know, I was thinking about this thing that happened and I wanted to talk about it. Um, uh, and we would just see where they were and how they were together. I really, really missed all of that. Um, and uh, uh, I, I, would, I would just love to see somebody explore that if that was a thing people wanted to explore it's a very good observation it's something i noticed too watching these episodes again just you know where, where's the wesley and, Ma and bev scenes you know they need to be more of those so we always totally felt agree. that that aspect of the relationship was massively underdeveloped and really just kind of left alone um and i i don't want to make presumptions and like point fingers i absolutely don't know why those choices were made just that they were made and i wish they had been made differently so, Will, when I interviewed Walter Koenig, I asked him this question that I usually ask all my guests, and that is, what is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? And uh, he was not too happy about that. He was like, you're going to ask me that, really? Because, <laughs> you know, he's talked about Star Trek for many, many years. So uh, instead, I asked him something different, and I kind of want to ask you this as well, because, you know, in my eyes, you have lived many lifetimes already with what you've gone through, the challenges and trials you've survived and overcome. So uh, I would really love to know, you know, and again, you're a person who I consider relatively young to ask this question to, but, you know, someone who has gone through so much. What do you want to leave behind as your legacy? I want my children to have the fullest, most satisfying, most joyful life they can each have. And I want to support that in every way I possibly can.
that is the, the most important thing to me. Yeah. I want, I want my kids to have absolutely everything they could ever want so that they can realize their dreams. Um, I am doing the absolute best I can to realize the dream I was able to put together from the pieces of a really just shattered childhood. Um, and I'm grateful for it and I'm happy about it. And I mean it very sincerely when I say that I am living an incredible life that I'm really grateful for. It's real important to me that my kids be given the opportunity and supported in the effort to find their individual dreams. And it's hard for them. The economy is terrible. And, uh, um, you know, those things are really stacked against their generation. But I have a lot of privilege and a lot of success that I can hopefully pass along to them as my legacy to help them take the success that I've been able to find and then use that as a stepping off point to find what is important to them in their lives. All right. So once again, the book is still just a geek. We're going to have links to that uh, for you. You can go ahead, pick it up yourself. And I highly recommend this book. I read this before we did this interview. Uh, and it's, it's an amazing book. And just one more time, I want to say again, congrats on your sobriety. And more importantly, Thanks, thank you for being an ambassador and advocate of mental health awareness. And really, I mean, talking to you right now, basically watching you was like seeing the avatar of myself on TV and seeing you grow up and see who you've become today. Uh, see who you've become today has been just amazing. And you've done, you've done the work, you've put in the time and you've helped so many people as well as helping yourself. So thank you for all of that. Yeah. Thanks a lot. It was really nice chatting with you. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of Trek Untold. And thank you for checking it out. One more time. If you're not following us on social media, please do so by checking us out on Twitter Facebook, and Instagram at Trek Untold. That's all one word, no spaces on any of those platforms. If you want to check out the video version of this podcast to see our guests, head over to youtube.com slash nerdnewstoday, where I post the video version of this show every Sunday after the initial episode airs on Thursdays. Shout out to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions, who create 3D printed toys and prop replicas inspired by Star Trek. Their items come in all shapes and all sizes and are always amazing. If you're in a position to financially support Trek Untold, please consider heading over to patreon.com slash trekuntold to become one of our Patreon supporters. There's a lot of cool perks that you can get by becoming a Patreon supporter, including early access to the episodes, the ability to ask our guests questions, and a lot more cool stuff coming very soon. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes or any other audio platforms that you listen to the show on that allow you to do so. Or if you're one of our YouTube audience members, please make sure you comment on this video and give it a thumbs up, and don't forget to subscribe to our channel. Until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz. This has been Trek Untold, and remember, fortune favors the bold. Trek Untold is sponsored by Treksphere.com. Promoting fan-produced Star Trek content in all forms, is powered by the Rageworks Podcasting Network, and is affiliated with Nerd News Today.